Please open your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Roman Christ followers. We're in chapter 9, and this morning we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 24 as we are continuing our exploration through uh, one of the most challenging chapters, really, in all the Bible. And we have been these last few weeks thinking hard together. We've been asking God to open our minds and our hearts to see what he has for us. And as difficult as these words have been, many of you have told me that your experience in these weeks of Paul's teaching has been glorious. You've told me that you have been led to deeper worship and and greater joy at the God who loved us first in Jesus as you have encountered and experienced these truths. You, You have said that Paul's vision, seeing that vision of God's grace has, has just caused your heart to beat faster for the people in your life who don't know God and, and you're praying for God to save them somehow and to use you in any way he chooses. And although none of us really thinks we understand all that Paul is telling us in this chapter, it has been good to rejoice in rich and profound, satisfying truth, hasn't it? Well, all that being said, we are coming today to what most may be the most challenging section of Romans 9. And just to prepare you for it, last week, if you were here, we, we saw this question that naturally arises whenever someone hears of the doctrine of unconditional election, which, which doctrine Paul powerfully states back in verse 11. And the question that comes from hearing about election is always, well, how is that fair? And we we saw uh, Paul answer that question last week in verses 14 through 18. And Paul showed us why it is fair and right and just for God to do it this way. We, We saw that God is just and that God is free to unconditionally elect because no one deserves to be saved. No one. In fact, It would be most fair and most just for God just to allow everyone to be judged, Paul argues. But Paul tells us that God chooses to give mercy to some while passing over others who get justice. No one gets injustice. You get mercy or you get justice. But no one gets injustice. And Paul says that God in his mercy decides who will believe and who will undeservingly be saved. And he passes over others who rebel and who deservingly perish. And you may remember last week that Paul uses that story of the hardening of Pharaoh to highlight this point. And that gets us to our passage today. And what we're going to see is Paul is going to describe for us the sovereign mercy of God, the sovereign mercy of God. And so as we work our way uh, through some very difficult verses, I want to just highlight for you to remember that the focus of Paul here is mercy. So let's listen to God's word, verses 19 through 24. Uh, Paul writes, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Well, Paul begins verse 19 with this question, and it's a question he must have faced many times, and he raises the question because of what he has just said back in verse 18. And so let me remind you of that verse. Paul had written, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That's verse 18. 
And that statement leads to this question in verse 19. Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And that is what uh, Paul is answering here in our passage. If God hardens whom he wills and has mercy on whom he wills, then how can he blame anyone? Because no one can resist his will. So why does God still find fault? And what this question is asking is who can ultimately and who can decisively resist God's will? We need to be clear on this because in one way, people resist God every day. People ignore God. People minimize God. People reject God. People deny him. But, but that's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is talking about the ultimate decisive cause of, of the election of God's people. And he's just asking, if God is the ultimate decisive cause, then really, how can he blame anyone? That's the objection. And I want you to be very clear on this. Do not miss that this question is being asked precisely because Paul is attributing the destiny of people ultimately to the will of God. Notice also, I've been repeatedly pointing this out, how Paul answers this objection so differently than most of us would. Paul doesn't apologize. Paul doesn't backpedal. He doesn't soften it. He doesn't water it down. He doesn't bring in some philosophical categories uh, to explain it. He just asserts that he just states it. And also, do not forget, as I have been saying each week, that this in no way means that human decisions are not real. The Bible teaches we have seen that God is sovereign and we are responsible at the same time. Both things are true. And every Christ follower who wants to align their lives with God's word, every one of us, we need to have a conceptual category in our brain that allows those two realities to coexist without being in conflict because they are compatible and we believe they are compatible because the Bible teaches them both. See, we make real and free decisions, but all of our real and free decisions always fall underneath and within God's sovereign decidings. Our decisions are not above God's deciding. They're not outside of God's deciding because that reality does not exist. As I told you a couple of weeks ago, our free and authentic and real decisions are contained in and interwoven with and subsumed under God's sovereignty because God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And so Paul hears this question and in response to it, he gives us three answers. Three answers. We're actually only going to get to the first two of them today. It just took longer to deal with this. We're going to be looking at verses 25 through 29 next week, so you can come back for that. But look at verse uh, 20 again, and we see in this verse, uh, the first answer, which is real simple, God is God. God is God. Paul begins by saying in response to this question, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Now, What is Paul doing here? Is Paul saying to us, how dare you ever ask questions? Is Paul shutting the conversation down because he doesn't want to deal with a hard question? And the answer is no, that is not at all what is going on here. I want to highlight this because I think when we look at the Bible overall, it is clear God loves our questions. God loves it when people come to him humbly and ask questions and ask in faith. He he is not put off by humble, faith-filled questions. God wants to help us. He wants us to know him. What Paul is addressing here and what is inappropriate is arrogant defiance, proud skepticism, doubting God's word, accusing God of wrongdoing, that kind of questioning is presumptuous. And to questions like that, God says, I am God. I am God. Now, we can assume, since Paul responds as he does, that the question that he is using to ask this is not some humble attempt to reconcile God's sovereignty with human responsibility. 
We can assume that this question in verse 19 is a rebellious spirit that refuses to acknowledge that God is sovereign over this world and that humans are still responsible. And so to that question asked that way, Paul says in effect, how can you, a mere man, think that you can dictate to God how the world should be run? How, how can you think that you can judge God's ways? See, Paul's not avoiding the question. He's addressing the heart behind the question. And, and so an application for all of us is don't be afraid to ask God questions. We believe that Christianity is the truth of the universe. And that is an enormous claim. And, and, and we believe that that claim will stand up under scrutiny. So, so we should have no problem as followers of Christ either asking questions or letting other people ask questions. So if you're here today, maybe you don't know Christ. Maybe you're someone who's seeking and you're, you're trying to understand, figure out who Jesus is. Ask your questions. Feel free. We are all in pursuit of truth together and, and we can ask questions, but we should always remember that God is God and therefore we should remain humble as we ask our questions. Now, Paul continues his answer by using a picture that it would have been instantly uh, recognizable to people in his day, uh, the picture of a potter making clay pots. And here's what he is saying by uh, this image. He's saying that as creator, God has the sovereign right to govern the world as he pleases. Does that make sense? He's saying God designed the world in such a way that some receive mercy and others receive justice. That's what we talked about last week, that God decided to do it that way. And then he, he goes to the second half of verse 20 and he says, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? And in other words, is it right for the pot to challenge the potter about, about how the potter is handling the clay? And this is a rhetorical question, and the answer, of course, is no. This is an unthinkable question. Paul is doing something here that's very important for us to be reminded of again and again and again. He is emphasizing the disparity between the potter and the clay, and he's comparing it to the distance and the difference between God and us. And if you don't like, if you don't like this comparison that Paul is saying you're like clay because it seems kind of demeaning to you. You need to understand it's even worse than you thought because if the difference between the potter and clay is like this, the difference between us, the created, and the creator God is infinitely greater. Do you understand what I'm saying? See, that's what Paul is trying to tell us. God is God and we are not. Now, in case you're wondering, he, he is not in any way saying anything about uh, human beings not being valuable. He's not saying that humans are junk, that, that humans are, are worthless. Human beings are not junk. Human beings are made in the image of God. We are created beings who are going to live forever somewhere. And yet, we are still the created, and God is the creator. He is God, and we are not. Paul is saying, and just as the clay is subordinate to the will of the potter, so human beings are subordinate to the will of God. Uh, and I just want to say, any attempt to make this somehow say that human beings are the ultimate decisive factor in salvation really is a distortion of the text. You cannot get this either out of this passage or out of this illustration. Verse 21, Paul continues, and he says, "'Has the potter no right over the clay?' to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Another rhetorical question. Answer is, of course he does, because he's the potter. Now, again, notice how Paul doesn't answer this question. He doesn't say, well, you know, the reason that God finds fault to answer your question is really because nobody chooses him. And, and it is ultimately and it is decisively dependent on what the pots choose. Paul doesn't say that. The focus clearly here is on the potter's will over 
the pot. So this is not about human agency. This is about God's sovereign freedom, which we talked about last week. The potter has freedom over the clay to do what he wants with the clay. That's Paul's point. And again, he doesn't apologize for it. He just asserts the potter's right over uh, the clay to make some vessels for honor, which means salvation, to make some vessels for dishonor, which means judgment. He's the potter. Pots don't make themselves. Pots don't determine their purpose. Pots don't decide, uh, you know, what they're going to do with their, their, their life. The potter is the one who creates. The potter is the one who decides. The potter has his purposes, and he can do as he pleases. Now, alongside of this, we need to remember who the potter is. And the potter, if he is a good and wise and just potter, as God is, then we can trust his purposes. See, all God's purposes with all of the pots are good and just and wise. God is not a mean or arbitrary or capricious potter. And so we can trust him. There are two clarifications I want to kind of lay out. The first um, it has to do with this phrase, doing as he pleases. To say that God can do as he pleases I think you would agree, at least in theory, right? like that's absolutely true, right? He's God. He does what he pleases. But we could hear that and misunderstand it. And I think the reason we can wonder about it is because on human terms with human relationships, if, if somebody comes to you, let's just say you're a parent and you have a child. And if this child comes to you and tells you, I can do whatever I want. See, that's not usually about them doing the right thing. That's not usually about them doing something wise. When, when human beings, even if they're adults, say things like, I can do whatever I want, that's typically an excuse to do something sinful or foolish. But this is never the case with God. God cannot do anything outside of his character, nor does he desire to do so. God can't sin. God can't be foolish. God can't do evil. So saying that God can do as he pleases is incredibly good news for us. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Because it means that he, God, is sovereignly and freely always acting out of the sheer fountain and overflow of his goodness and his justice and his wisdom, never out of evil, never out of sin, not ever. We want God to do as he pleases all the time. Amen? Second clarification. To say that God makes vessels for honor and dishonor out of the same clay, uh, this does not mean that God planned from eternity past to make some people bad and other people savable. Like you could read it that way, and some have, but that's that's not what it means really in the context of all Romans 9, even the rest of the New Testament. And what it means is that God applies redeeming mercy to some amidst the mass of humanity dead in their sins. See, the point you need to get here is the lump of clay is not innocent. That's the problem many people have the mistake many people make in thinking through this. The lump of clay is not innocent. In fact, just roll the tape back in our study of Romans to Romans 1 through 3. What was the point of those first three chapters? Simply this, we're all sinners. Amen? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.10 and 11 and, and following. And, and, and so Paul is just saying any pot that's used for dishonorable purposes is guilty and receives judgment. As I've been saying, no one receives injustice. See, Paul's point is that God is free to do as he wishes with the clay, whether he pardons some or whether he permits all to perish, he is free and he is right to do so. Just think about this. If the clay is sinful, what should be shocking to us is not that some of that clay is made for dishonorable uses. That actually makes sense. That's what bad clay is for, right? But what is shocking, what should be unbelievable to us is that he chooses to use any of the clay for honorable, pure purposes. 
That's Paul's point. And we just don't go there, do we? We don't get there on our own. See, most of us, when we wrestle with this idea of God's sovereignty and his unconditional election, and we think about things like the problem of evil, we're asking the question, why doesn't God save everybody? Why doesn't God save all of the pots? And yet, I think that God's angels up in heaven looking down on this planet, especially in 2024, I think the angels ask, why does God save any of them? See, we don't ask that question, and that's actually a more appropriate biblical question to ask. Why does God save anyone? He's not obligated to do so. It's out of his sheer mercy. See, what I'm pointing out here is we often come to questions like these with unconscious or unstated assumptions. We, we think we deserve things that God nowhere in his word, word says that we deserve. I think when we look at this for us today, God's people gathered in God's house together to worship God our Father. This, this is all meant to shock the vessels of honor, which is, which is us. That question back in verse 20, why have you made me like this, kind of begins to zoom in on God's reasons for doing it this way. And, and I think at this point, Paul is, is kind of saying, I'm going to answer this, but right now it's like he's saying, I'm about to give you a reason for the question you're asking. But before I give you that reason, I want you to understand something fundamental. We are the pots and God is the potter. God is God. And you need to start there. You need to submit yourself to that and accept that. Just like Paul might say the pots don't know all the reasons why the potter chooses to do what he does. So we don't know all the reasons why God chooses to do what he does, but we, as the pots, have no place to judge God and God's ways. Would you agree with that? See, God, the Bible tells us, sees things that we don't. He knows things that we don't. He is wise in ways that we are not and never will be. God is God. And so we must be very careful to arrogantly challenge God. We must be very careful that we are not questioning his goodness and his wisdom. That is Paul's first argument. There is a God and it's not us. God is God and, and we are, are not. Now, I just want to press this home a minute before we move on. I just want you to think about what you've been hearing. Do you see how this humbles us in the very best way possible. Do you see how this truth keeps us from treating God casually? Do you see how this should cause to well up within us a, a newfound gratitude and appreciation for our salvation and the gift of God's righteousness to us, which we as pots in no way ever deserve? Do you see? Friends, I'm telling you today, only a God like this is worthy of our worship. Only a God like this is worthy of our hearts and our lives. Only a God like this is worthy of our absolute trust. And only a God like this can satisfy our souls. Only a God who is God. Well, here's the second answer that Paul gives. He says that God displays his sovereign glory through mercy. Or maybe you, you could word it like this. God displays his glory most fully in this way. Paul moves now to verses 22 and 23. And what he is doing here, and you may want to write this down and just kind of think about it. But he's highlighting the deepest reason why God does things this way. And, and these verses are incredibly deep and complex. They are some of the most important in Paul's writing. And the reason is they point us toward why God allows evil and unbelief. And I'm not telling you, I'm going to give you the final absolute answer on this. We are dealing with mystery as we have been all along here. But I think Paul is opening the door for us. I think he's shedding some light. I, I think this is the deepest argument in the Bible that we can find for why it is right for God to unconditionally choose to show mercy to some while 
he allows others to remain and persist in their unbelief. With that in mind, listen to verse 22. Paul says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath, you might want to circle that, that word show, God's wrath, of course, is not like an anger uh, management problem he has. It's not a temper tantrum. God's wrath is his settled, measured opposition to sin. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known, maybe circle that phrase, make known, show, make known, his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now, If you read this whole passage, these are the vessels for dishonorable use that Paul talked about in verse 21. And and when he says they are prepared for destruction, he's talking about God's judgment. And so if we put this all together, here's the question Paul is asking. What if God has a purpose in creating some vessels for dishonorable use for judgment? And let me ask you a question. Can, in your mind... Can God have a purpose in this? Is that possible? See, Paul is saying there is a purpose for God doing it this way. Just think about this carefully. He is saying that God is patient with sinful unbelief and evil in order to show his wrath on the one hand and to make known his judging power. And this is a similar thing to what he said, which we saw last week in verse 17, where God told Pharaoh, remember this? God said to Pharaoh, I have raised you up in order that I might show my power, not your power, Pharaoh, my power. I have raised you up so I might display my glory. Now God could have, instantly, immediately destroyed Pharaoh once he disobeyed. But he didn't do that, did he? That would have been easy. That would have been just. But God delayed his judgment on Pharaoh. And in doing so, Paul is telling us that God further magnified his name, further displayed or showed his glory, further exhibited his power. And this is even more forcefully seen, Paul says, because of the delay. Are you you tracking with what Paul's telling us? I mean, think about it. Pharaoh rebelled again and again and again. I was just reading uh, this part of the Exodus account a, a week or so ago, and I was struck by the fact that several plagues in, all of Pharaoh's advisors are saying, Pharaoh, enough. God is this God, whoever he is, he's wiping us out. Let him go. Let him go, Pharaoh. He's killing us. And Pharaoh keeps hardening his heart. He keeps rebelling. And finally, 10 plagues in, God displays the greatness of his just wrath, the power of his judgment. It it is shown even more greatly through his patience and through his delay. And it is seen, I think, that Paul looks and says, in doing it this way, God uh, was multiplying his wonders, that evil was seen as the evil it is, and that God's victory was all the more glorious. He's saying that God's patience displays his wrath and its glory, his judgment and its glory. He's also saying this is not only what God does with Pharaoh. This is what God has always been doing all across human history. That God is always being patient with vessels of destruction in order to more fully display the glory of his wrath and his power. And Paul, I think, would tell us that is in part why God permits unbelief and evil to temporarily exist. It has a purpose and it exists because, not because God doesn't care, not because God is aloof and indifferent, not because God is somehow evil himself. He is allowing it, permitting it because he's using it to display his unmatched glory and his righteous wrath against sin. And this is so important for us, people who live in 21st century America, people who have such lofty opinions about ourselves, right? We're all so special, so unique. I mean, that's what our culture tells us all the time. And there's a sense, biblically, in which there's some truth there, but like we're over the top with it. And I think one of the reasons why 
I'm drilling down on this and it's so important is because we can tend, especially in our day, to have this imbalance, un, uh, this lopsided view of God's glory as though only the love and only the grace and only the mercy and patience and kindness of God were part of his glory. And yet all of who God is, is all of his glory. One of God's glories does not exceed all the other glories. God's justice and God's wrath are integral to his incomparable glory. And I just want to say to you about our patient, merciful God, aren't you glad he's so patient and merciful? I just want to say to you, when you stop to really think about it, we want God to be like this. We, we do not want an unjust, un trustworthy, unholy God. We want God to be 100% just, 100% holy, 100% righteous. We want God to do what is right always, to never do what is wrong, to never do what is evil. We don't want him to wink at evil and shrug his shoulders or brush things under the rug or turn a blind eye or simply move on and forget about it. And God doesn't. That's what Paul's saying here. God is patient with vessels of wrath in order to show his wrath and make known his judging power. And, you know, among other things, this is why we don't, as individuals, need to take vengeance on people who do us wrong. This is why we don't need to hold grudges or cultivate bitterness. And maybe, maybe God brought you here today for that, that reason right there. We have a patient, merciful God. And the Bible tells us the Lord of all the earth will always do what is right. Therefore, we know we can trust him. Amen? You see, the seeming quietness of God um, in our lives sometimes amidst all of the evil and unbelief and rebellion in this world, it is not indifference. It is calculated strategic patience for that day when his just judgments will be revealed and his wonders will be even more greatly multiplied and magnified because of the, the, all of the evil. That's what Paul is telling us. But you know, if you keep going here, displaying the glory of God's just wrath is not the deepest reason why God permits unbelief and evil. The deepest reason is this, against the backdrop of God's just wrath, the immeasurable preciousness of God's glory is most clearly displayed to God's vessels of mercy whom he has prepared for glory. That's what he's telling us in verse 23. Listen to this. In order to make known the riches of his glory, what's next? Four vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. In order to make known the riches of his glory, to show himself as infinitely precious. That, that word riches there is meant to awaken in us a sense that God is valuable beyond all price. So in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Again, remember, that's us, those who Christ has redeemed. Verse 24, he makes it clear, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. I want you to be real clear in this. This is a long sentence. So what is Paul saying? I want to make sure you're noticing the flow of thought. If you go up to verse 22, Paul says, what if? So everybody say, what if? So Paul says, what if? And then in verse 23, he says, in order to. Everybody say that, in order to. So what if? In order to, see what Paul's doing, the ultimate biblical answer to why evil exists. What is it? Well, it's here in verse 23. I don't think there's a more ultimate answer in the Bible than this. So God shows his wrath. He makes known his power. He patiently endures these vessels of wrath. Why? What for? Verse 23 says, in order to make known his glory for vessels of mercy so that his people, that's us, will see and will savor God's 
incomparable glories, and especially here, his mercy. His mercy. See, this is the ultimate reason why God has ordained evil to exist without being evil himself. And just keep this in mind. Maybe this is above what we can comprehend, but it is no sin in God to will that there be sin. There is no sin in God's will that sin and evil might exist. He can do that without becoming evil himself or without committing sin himself. Paul is telling us here that God uses evil. He's so sovereign. He can use evil so that the fullness of his glory, including God's just wrath, might be fully known to his vessels of mercy. This is just a small illustration of this, but maybe it'll resonate with some of us. Every husband who's ever shot for a diamond ring, maybe to ask for his wife to marry him, maybe to celebrate like a significant anniversary, maybe because the husband has done something really, really bad and he's trying to get out of trouble. I don't know. But when you go to the jeweler and you look at the diamonds... The jeweler always pulls out something. What is it? He pulls out a black velvet cloth of some kind, doesn't he? And he puts the diamonds on the cloth. Why? Well, it's because the darkness of the velvet makes the glory of the diamond even brighter. See, evil exists as a dark backdrop to display God's manifold glories to his vessels of mercy. Maybe you never thought about it, but think about it now. Without evil and sin, God would not be able to display his perfect justice, would he? There would be nothing to judge. There would be nothing to contrast his pure holiness with or, or his righteous wrath. Without evil and sin, there would be no sin to forgive, so he wouldn't be able to display his lavish grace and mercy. There would be no misery to be rescued from, so he'd not be able to display his goodness in redemption. Without evil and sin, there would be no display of God's mercy or God's goodness to undeserving people like you and like me. And so paradoxically, we would not know the fullness and the completeness of who God is apart from the existence of evil. Now, I am aware that there are those who interpret all this in different ways. I am aware, as I've been telling you every week, there is mystery here. I'm not telling you this resolves everything and you should just go, okay, that wraps it all up. But I am telling you that this is what Paul is telling us here. And I am encouraging you not to be discouraged if you don't think you get it yet. God says this is his purpose And if we don't understand it, we keep trusting because we know he is good. We keep praying because we know he answers prayers. We keep thinking because God has given us his word. I mean, if you stop to think about it, if we exist as we do to know God and to enjoy God forever, this would be impossible apart from the reality of evil. A couple of centuries or so ago, Jonathan Edwards, who is... Uh, considered to be probably America's greatest theologian, wrote these words. He said, evil is necessary for the highest happiness of the creature, which probably says what in your mind, but keep listening, and the completeness of that communication of God for which he made the world. And what he means by that phrase is us understanding God, how, who God communicates himself to be. Because, he goes on, the creature's happiness consists in the knowledge of God and in the sense of his love. And let me stop there. Would you agree that the more you know God, the more joy and happiness you'll have in your life? Would you agree with that? That's what he's saying. Because the creature's happiness consists in the knowledge of God and the sense of his love. And if the knowledge of God be imperfect, the happiness of the creature must be proportionally imperfect. And the sense of the goodness of God, therefore, will be comparatively dull and flat without the knowledge of evil. That's a lot. But I think you may get the general thrust of what he's saying 
that we see God's beauty, God's glory, God's greatness even more contrasted with evil. He's saying evil exists so that we might fully know the goodness of God. And the more we recognize and know the goodness of God, the more our joy is made full. And so that means if God permits sin and evil and unbelief to display the fullness of his glory, including his wrath and his just judgment, that means that no legitimate fault can be raised against God. God has a purpose, and it is a good purpose, a good purpose. There is no injustice in God for doing it this way. He's just telling us that God's vessels of mercy, that's us, say that's us, will rejoice all the more in his mercy, the more we understand his just wrath and his judging power. I've told you before um, that when we lived in Chicago, which was a long time ago, when we lived in Chicago, one of the things that I learned as a California native was that people in the Midwest celebrate summer in a way that people in California never do. You get what I'm talking about? If you don't, it's because of the bitterness of winter. It's like we take summer pretty casually around here because like it's February and it's 60 degrees, right? And all God's people said, I mean, I used to say Chicago is a stupid place to live and I still say that. (laughs) But you get the point. His mercy wouldn't overwhelm us like it should without that contrast of the exercise of his wrath without us understanding what our sin deserves, what we deserve. See, it's so important you see this in this passage. We're talking a lot about wrath, but in this passage, wrath is not ultimate. What is ultimate? Mercy. Mercy is ultimate. See, in in Paul's argument, in his unfolding thought, Uh, Wrath is this springboard that elevates and highlights the glory of God's mercy. Wrath serves to exalt the glory of God's mercy to his vessels of God's mercy. So like God's mercy is not some cheap, you know, dime a dozen presidential day coupon that you get in the mail. It's infinitely precious. And so God, is he less glorious because he ordained that there be real evil and guilt and judgment? And Paul's answer is absolutely not. He says that God's glory actually shines more truly and brightly this way because there's real evil and real guilt and real sin. God is glorified in his mercy and he's glorified in his justice. God is glorified in his love and he's glorified in his wrath. And in this mystery, God never punishes anyone who does not deserve to be judged ever. And so therefore, election is unconditional, undeserved, and merciful. And final judgment is conditional, always deserved, and just. No one gets injustice. No one. And on that day, that great day of judgment, the vessels of destruction will close their mouths in terror and they will think, this is justice, I am getting what I deserve. And on that same day, vessels of mercy, God's vessels of mercy will also close their mouths, but in gratitude, in trembling, thinking, this is mercy. This is not what I deserve. You see, If you have repented of your sins, if you have placed a living trust in Christ today, then you are a vessel of mercy prepared by God for his glory. And so Christ followers, I just want to ask you, do you see yourself like that? Is that how you think of yourself as a vessel of mercy formed and fashioned from an undeserving lump of clay? And when we see ourselves that way, Why would we ever question God's commitment and love for us? Mercy. 
Mercy is God's undeserved favor to the undeserving by faith in Jesus. God made us alive when we were spiritually dead rebels by mercy. He he made us his enemies into his adopted children by mercy. He forgives all of our sins, past, present, and future by mercy. He loves the unlovable by mercy. He graciously promises and is preparing a forever future home for us with him with ever-increasing joy, all by mercy. So all forgiveness and all acceptance and all love and all peace and all joy, it is all by mercy. In Christ, we are vessels of mercy. And that should make our hearts explode with gratitude and love and honor and and trembling. It should cause us to take ourselves way less seriously than we typically do and take God more seriously than we usually do. See, no one deserves to be a Christian. No one deserves to be chosen. No one deserves to be called or saved or transformed or indwelt by the Holy Spirit or, or made a joint heir with Christ. No one deserves to be on their way to heaven. No one deserves. We have nothing to boast about, nothing at all. And there is nothing more contradictory than a proud Christian. We are vessels of mercy. It's all mercy. And when we get this, I'm just telling you, I hope you are seeing it. It totally transforms our lives. When you are thrilled by God's mercy, and maybe some of you haven't been thrilled yet, but I am telling you when you are, it will draw out white-hot worship. When you are thrilled by God's mercy, it frees us to live for that, that which can never be taken away. It, it liberates us from trifling with God from taking ourselves too seriously. And it makes vessels of mercy into more merciful people, which we need in our world more than ever, right? And what is so shocking about this, Paul highlights it in verse 24, is simply this. Anyone can get in on this. The door is wide open. Anyone can get in on this. That's that's why he says it's Jew and Gentile. It's everyone. It doesn't matter your tribe, tongue, or language because it's not about merit. It's all about mercy. It's not about goodness. It's all about grace. That was a good place for an amen there. Now, I kind of alluded to this at the beginning of the message. I had originally planned to preach through verse 29 but we're not going to make it today as usual. Y'all don't listen fast enough. I'm sorry, trying to help you with that. But we are gonna pick it up next week and uh, and we're gonna continue on looking at this. And so I I know something about you, okay? There are some of you who are gonna like twitch all week because of that third fill-in being empty. And so I'm gonna help you out with that. I'm merciful, okay? Not God, but I'm merciful. So here's the last fill-in. I'm telling you it's a good one, but you got to come back to hear what it's about. The third answer Paul is going to give, we'll see it next week, is this. God's mercy is far greater than you ever dreamed. It is far greater than you ever dreamed. And we'll talk in verses uh, 25 to 29 how that uh, Paul answers that next week. But for now, as we close... If you are here this morning and you're not yet a Christ follower, I just want to exhort you and to say to you, do not think I'm too guilty, I'm too messy, my heart, my life are too dark. You don't know what I've done. I'm unworthy. I want to tell you as a pastor, I know what you've done because I know what I've done. And we're all sinners Jesus came for people like you and like me. He came for dark and messy, guilty, unworthy people because that's the only kind of people there are. And out of lumps of clay, he makes vessels of mercy. If you don't know Jesus yet, I'm just telling you today. Jesus came and he lived your life the life you should have lived. He died the death you should have died in your place. He took the penalty for your sin on himself and he rose again from the grave to prove that everything he'd already done is true. And he now offers to you salvation and it's free. It is free. It's mercy. 
All you have to do is repent and believe, and it can be yours. See, the potter is sovereign over the clay. And even though we may not understand all about his infinite purposes, we can trust him. And we can do what he has called us to do. And our role as these vessels of mercy is to spread the gospel of Jesus far and wide. It is to respond in faith to him day after day after day. To pursue holiness in our lives. To walk closer to Jesus in whom all the riches of God's glory are found. To to revel in that reality that we are vessels of mercy. Not because of anything we have done. But all because of God's mercy. All because of God's grace. And that is the way that Paul tells us that that God displays his glory most fully. And he does it to us, to his vessels of mercy. Would you bow your heads as we pray? Father God, such amazing truth you reveal and you teach us in your inspired word and Lord, these uh, truths are sobering and they're even staggering and yet it is so life-giving to know that you can use even evil and sin for your greater purposes. Lord, we confess as the pots that we cannot fully understand all you think and and all you, you do, but we hold tightly to you. Would you remind us even now of the honor it it is to be made a vessel of honor from a lump of clay, to be made a vessel of mercy when we never deserved it. It's just a supernatural act of a good and merciful God. Lord, we love you. We're so grateful for all that you have done for us in Jesus. And we pray that you would help us to be people transformed by mercy, who show mercy to the the world around us, the kind of mercy our our world so desperately needs. We, We pray all of these things and so much more, Father, in the name of Jesus, Jesus' merciful name. And God's people all say, amen.